Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad Podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad. I'll pull out. Thank you for joining me today. Sorry about last week. I will get into why we didn't have an episode last week, but it doesn't come down to anything other than I was filming in Alaska. So I'm going to have some Alaska stories for you this week. But before we get into that, we've got a couple of other topics to talk about. The first is the U.S. is going to begin allowing EU citizens to arrive in the U.S. in November, although the details are still being fleshed out and no firm date has been set. What does that mean? What does that look like? And not just the EU, but a couple of other countries are on the list and what that means for the state of travel over the next few months. And I want to talk about the travel industry recovering and what that looks like. So from the hotel industry, how it's been impacted since the beginning of the pandemic and lost luggage. Yeah, uh, a lot of people are flying again, and that means a lot more airlines are losing luggage. I'll tell you which airlines are the best and worst for losing and keeping your uh, luggage safe. So we'll get into that. And then I want to end this episode by sharing you a story about one of the greatest travelers you've probably never heard of. Now getting into the first story, the U.S. is set to relax travel restrictions for vaccinated foreign air travelers in November. So this was just announced about a week ago. It says the United States will reopen in November to air travelers from 33 countries, including China, India, Brazil, and most of the Europe who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19, the White House said on Monday. That was a week ago from earlier this week easing tough pandemic-related restrictions that started early last year. This article is from Reuters and continues to go on to say the decision announced by the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Jeff Zients marked an abrupt shift for President Joe Biden's administration, which said last week it was not the right time to lift any restrictions amid rising COVID-19 cases. The United States will admit fully vaccinated travelers from the 26 so-called Schengen countries, that includes France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Switzerland, and Greece, as well as Britain, Ireland, and then including on top of that China, India, South Africa, Iran, and Brazil. Previously, travelers from those countries or people who were not U.S. citizens who had visited those countries were barred from entering the United States. And some of these travel restrictions, like the one on China, began back in January 2020 by then-President Donald Trump and was then extended to dozens of other countries without any clear metrics for how and when to lift them. And now that we're here at this point, there aren't really any clear indications on a couple of key points. The first is, what is a vaccination? In other words, which vaccines will be accepted and which vaccines won't be accepted to register somebody as fully vaccinated? There's also no word on how you will prove that you are fully vaccinated, what sort of forms you'll need in these various countries, what the official documents will be, and whether that will be digitized. There's also no firm date set on when those travelers might be able to visit. November is set as sort of a loose date, but there's nothing in stone yet, and obviously the pandemic is still going on and things could change. So nothing is set in stone, but the tourism industry is quite happy to hear this. Now, let me give you an idea of what this list and why those countries were specified when it comes to U.S. travel. And there's a good reason for it. The travelers coming to the United States, number one country, I'll go over the top 20 list, but the number one country in terms of visitors to the United States is probably not surprising. Number one is Mexico. Number two is Canada. Obviously, those countries border the United States, so that makes sense. And those border restrictions are still there, although the one with Canada is easing up slowly and Mexico is still accepting U.S. travelers, but the reverse is not necessarily true. 
But if you look at the rest of this list, let's look at this. United Kingdom is third on the list for U.S. visitors. People who are visiting the U.S. are coming from these countries. United Kingdom is number three. So these changes in the policy is significant. EU travelers and European travelers and UK travelers being able to visit is significant. Now, if we skip over this list, we've got Japan at number four. Number five is China, which is a major contributor to the number of tourists coming to the United States. It's about three million visitors per year. Compare that to the UK, which is about five million. It's not an insignificant amount. Then if you go down this list where the travel restrictions are potentially being lifted on, we got Germany. So we've got China at number five, six, South Korea. Then we've got number seven, Germany. We've got number eight, Brazil, number nine, France. Skip over Australia for now. We've got India as well. Then Italy, Spain, and then the Netherlands rounding it out at number 20. So when you total this up, when you total this number of visitors, this is over 10 million people a year, travelers who are visiting the United States, which is a pretty big amount of visitors per year. Obviously, a lot of money. That money goes into the tourism industry from the airlines to the hotels to food to local businesses in all of the places that people are visiting. These you know, restrictions are being lifted um, and th there's a big economic incentive to do so. The tourism industry, as we all know, is, is hurting pretty badly and this is a major corridor for tourism in the world is between the US and the EU so hopefully these restrictions will be lifted and all of us will get to travel some more and it will help some of the businesses that have been hurting however now on the flip side as of a couple days ago we have the EU removing the United States from its safe list of countries whose residents can travel to 27 member states without requirements such as quarantine and testing this generated confusion the New York Times article says with some people writing on social media that Americans have been banned from visiting Europe. That's actually not what the recommendation means. So the article goes out and I'm going to explain to you what this means for your travels if, you're a, you're, if you are an American who is planning a trip to Europe. The way this works is the EU is essentially a, making a non-binding mandate to its member states. Essentially, they are encouraging the authorities across Europe to reinstate sort of mandatory quarantine and testing requirements that seem to be on their way out, though primarily for unvaccinated travelers. Ultimately, however, it's up to a country to decide whether it wants to issue new requirements at all. The first notable changes were announced last Tuesday by Italy. Even if visitors are vaccinated, they must now obtain a negative coronavirus test 72 hours before arrival. Previously, some airlines such as Delta required this, but the Italian government did not. In general, though, if you are fully vaccinated with an EU-approved vaccine, which include those manufactured by Pfizer, Moderna, J&J. &J. The requirements you face entering a EU country are unlikely to change significantly. Many member states have already been urging travelers to bring proof of vaccination and waiving quarantine requirements that can show that proof of vaccination. Now, this is sort of an interesting turn and not so unexpected in two ways. One, Restrictions, as we saw last year, tend to pop up around now, around the fall, because most people who are traveling to Europe travel in the summer. That's the busy travel season. That's when most people in the Northern Hemisphere are traveling. And then in the fall, especially later in the fall now, that starts to dip down significantly as schools open, people head back to work, and then it's easier to implement these restrictions and less economically devastating. Italy had been accepting a lot of tourists, and if you have friends on Instagram or you follow travel bloggers, you follow people who are traveling, you might have noticed a lot of them are going to a couple of countries, Croatia, one of them that comes to mind in, in Europe, 
Turkey is another one, and Italy is certainly on that list. But things are changing a little bit. Now, under their new policy, unvaccinated American travelers will now have to self-isolate for up to five days in the country, according to the National Tourism Board there. Previously, unvaccinated U.S. travelers needed to take a coronavirus test 48 hours before touching down, but they did not have to quarantine. However, this recommendation, which right now is limited to Italy, does not apply to any of the EU countries. Obviously, by the time you're listening to this podcast, whether you're listening to it fresh out of the gate or you're listening to it a couple days later, be sure to check with the airline and check with the embassy of the country that you're visiting to make sure that you have the latest updated requirements and that you, you know, are able to board your flight and you have all the documentation needed. And if you have not listened to my podcast talking with a doctor from St. Jude's on why you should be vaccinated, it's going to make your life easier. It's going to protect you from coronavirus. And if you need any other information about the virus, if you have questions about it, look, I asked all of my questions on that episode. I highly recommend it. You can find it. It's uh, from earlier this year. Any crazy question you had, believe me, I took your questions. I asked them and uh, I felt much reassured after it. All right, so let's go through down a couple of questions. If you are going to Europe, what if I'm vaccinated but my children aren't? If children are too young to get vaccinated, then the new recommendation does not affect them. What if I'm unvaccinated but travel is essential? It does make an exception for essential travel. And again, this new EU recommendation is just a recommendation to the member state countries. They can't, they're not doing a blanket uh, EU requirement for travelers. Every country is making up their own set of rules. So right now, Italy is the only one that's kind of changed anything. But again, you've got to check by country. A lot of countries where tourism, where they're dependent on tourism, I think right now uh, they're keeping things open. But as we get into the colder months, as we get into the months where people are traveling less, things will change. So I just wanted to make you aware of this sort of opening of a lot of places. And now this sort of close not closing but it's it's adding more layers of restriction to especially unvaccinated american travelers going to europe so just wanted to let you know about that all right so let's go through a little bit of a guessing game i want to talk to you about now that travel has resumed sort of and now that it's been on pause for quite a while for many of us i i, I want to take a look at two two factors, two things that I came across. So I got this report right here, and this is by the American Hotel and Lodging Association. Now, if you had to guess how much the hotel industry has lost in the United States alone since the pandemic began, since the end of 2019, how much money do you think that it would have lost? I'll, I'll give you a second to guess. I would not have guessed this amount. $59 billion in business travel revenue alone has been lost since the pandemic began for the hotel industry. That is pretty massive and very surprising. I did not expect the figure to be so high, and obviously that figure comes with a human cost as well. So if you had to guess the number of people who lost jobs in the hotel industry since the beginning of the pandemic, how many would you guess? Well, it turns out that 500,000 jobs have been lost since the pandemic has begun in the hotel industry. Uh, just a side note, when I was in Alaska, there is a major labor shortage there. I saw it everywhere I went. I, I mean, it Im impacted restaurants and hotels, especially there, which are very seasonal. 
Um, I'll get into that a little bit when we talk about Alaska, but it's very apparent there, and you may have noticed it if you've been traveling lately. And this press release goes on to say that for every 10 people directly employed on a hotel property, hotels support an additional 26 jobs in the community, from restaurants and retail to hotel supply companies, adding nearly 1.3 million hotel-supported jobs also. So perhaps unsurprising, the COVID-19 pandemic is the worst economic event in the history of the United States hotel industry. Many urban markets, which rely heavily on business from events and group meetings, continue to face severe financial crises in this uh, as the pandemic goes on. Now, the top five states that have lost hotel revenue as a percentage of jobs lost in 2021 are the District of Columbia, 43%, Hawaii, 28%, Illinois, 35%, Massachusetts, 30%, and New York down 38% since the beginning of this year, according to Oxford Economics. So again, we see the impact this is having on the travel industry, which is very decentralized. And it's one of the reasons that the hotel industry and the travel industry in general doesn't get as much sort of... It doesn't get as much clout, I guess, a clout, <laughs> clout. It doesn't get as much clout as other industries, which have a sort of central talking head for it. But the travel industry is so distributed when it talks about hotels and restaurants and airlines. They're all kind of separate, but together in a sense that when you travel, you're using all of these different services. You're flying, taking trains, you're visiting hotels, you're eating at restaurants, all of that stuff. But when it comes to lobbying, when it comes to, you know, trying to help the industry, all those lobbies are very separated and they don't coordinate well together. And, you know, people think of the travel industry as, ah, oh, just people going on vacation, it's frivolous, but there's a huge economic incentive for people to travel. I personally think that it's also very important for the 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 global stability of the world and uh that that that's for another article coming out at another time written by yours truly but i think there's a lot of benefits to travel there's a lot of, of of both social cultural and also economic benefits to traveling and i think based on my travels over the last two months which I, i've just started traveling again it's pretty difficult to travel it's not very fun to actually go from one place to the other that part of traveling has always been kind of not great and now it's a lot more difficult with swab tests, quarantines. It's making it very difficult for people to travel. It's making it more cumbersome for people to travel. It's increasing the amount of people spend on things like PCR tests. We're spending a lot of money on PCR tests and quarantines and all this stuff when we could be spending that on food, on car rentals, and all these other things that people do when they travel. So, you know, that's sort of a hidden cost when it comes to the tourism industry. Now, Flipping it over, the airlines, oh, airlines, you know, just, guys, what are, what? It's hard to feel bad for you because let's, let's play another guessing game. We're traveling more now. Let's talk about June of this year and let's go back to the beginning of this year, 2021. Talking about U.S. airlines, this is from LuggageHero.com. How many bags do you think were lost or mishandled in the first half of this year? Give you a second to think about it. And if you said 690,000 bags were lost or mishandled in the first half of 2021, you would be correct. There were 692,884 mishandled bags and lost luggage in the first half of 2021 only in the United States. That is a lot of bags. I know I'm going to give you the percentage of what that is when it comes to the overall number of bags that were actually transported, 
still a lot of bags, right? But pop, pop in an air tag in there. If you haven't seen my air tag video, how to track lost luggage electronically, it's not a bad idea. This mishandled luggage figure has improved though, 1.1% compared to the first half of 2021. But to be fair, we really weren't traveling as much in 2021. Now on the brighter side, using our logical minds, there were 160 million bags that were checked in on a flight over the last half of this year. So it's less than a percent of bags that are lost. It's less than half a percent of bags that are lost or mishandled, which is pretty good when you consider it. It's just a lot of bags because there are a lot of bags being checked. It's kind of amazing when you think of that number, 690,000. It's kind of amazing that, I mean, I it's pretty rare. I'll tell you what, you know, I've lost luggage. I've had luggage delayed significantly two or three times over the last few years. And it's always been when like I really need the luggage, like I'm on a really short trip and I don't have any clothes for the next day, that kind of thing, or I'm going to an event, you know, and I've got a suit in there, something dumb like that. It's the only time that my luggage gets lost, but I feel like that's kind of how the how life works, how the matrix works. Now that we know that airlines, all right, they lose percentage-wise, not a significant percentage, but a lot of luggage, right? So which airlines are the best and the worst? And I really wish I had looked at this list before I had flown recently because I flew with the number four list on this airline. So when we're talking about the worst airlines in the U.S. for handling baggage, let's talk about this. We have Envoy Air, which I've never flown, but they lose per 1,000 check bags about nine of them. So nine out of every 1,000 bags they lose. The next one is American Airlines, which is about 7.8 bags per 1,000 lost. These two airlines are pretty significantly, you know, higher up than the other ones. Then we have Mesa Airlines, which is about six bags per 1,000. And then number four, I can't believe it, Alaska Airlines. Alaska Airlines, which is about 5.8 bags per 1,000 they lose. Although when I was getting off the flight, they do make an announcement. They say, we guarantee that your bag will be on the on the uh, baggage carousel for you to pick up 20 minutes after we are wheels down on the flight. And that was true. My bags were there 20 minutes, if not faster. As soon as I got to the to the baggage carousel, I was able to get my bag that I had checked in and take it with me. So they were very fast. I didn't know I was playing you know, hard and loose with my bags, you know, potentially getting lost. But um, anyway, those are the top four airlines. If you want to go down here, we've got Republic Airlines, PSA Airlines, JetBlue is about four bags per 1,000, and the list goes on. I'm going to, let's pick out United Airlines, which is about 3.8 bags. Same thing with Spirit Airlines and Delta are all sort of there with bags lost. So some of the best airlines are Hawaiian Airlines, Frontier Airlines, that would mean you would have to fly Frontier Airlines. Uh, don't get me started. And then the best one, which loses less than two bags per thousand, is Allegiant Air. So there you go. That's how the, the, the airlines are handling your bags. So more travel means more lost bags. And uh, those are the best and worst airlines, at least in the United States. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about Alaska. I want to talk a little bit about my trip to Alaska. Why Alaska? I was supposed to be in Central Asia at 
at this time. I was in Pakistan about a month ago, but there were travel restrictions being imposed in different parts of the country. And then my plans to Central Asia were sort of shut down by coronavirus restrictions. And I was like, you know what? Where do I really want to go? And I've always really, really wanted to go to Alaska. And let me tell you this. After having been there for a week, I'm going to tell you that it is a place, if you can, that you should see at least once in your lifetime. It is one of the most amazing places I have ever been. And it is changing rapidly. So if you can go there, and it is far away from most places. It's far away from Seattle. It's like a four or five hour flight from Seattle to get to Anchorage. It's not close to pretty much anything, but it's well worth your time. And it's well worth staying, if you can, two weeks, if, especially if you like to be outdoors. It's it's amazing. Um, the season there starts about the middle of May until the middle of September. And things really do start shutting down there. So I got a little taste of that, catching restaurants on their last day open for the season. So if I were to do this all over again, I'd probably pick the first two weeks of September. Seemed like a great time to go. In terms of the weather, things that people ask me, how cold is it? It really depends on where you are. Um, I was in Anchorage, Fairbanks, Denali, Seward. So it was kind of like from a north and south. I didn't really go east and west in the state. Those were kind of the main stops, the main places I was in. And the temperature at night in all those places was about close to freezing, I would say. So close to 32 Fahrenheit, zero degrees Celsius. During the day, it was unseasonably warm, especially earlier in the week. It was about 55 degrees Fahrenheit, which I think is about eight degrees Celsius um, and sunny and clear and not windy, which is very unusual for that part of Alaska. And in this time of the year, uh, it worked out very well because I did take a wildlife cruise, uh, wildlife boat trip from Seward Got to see some of the glaciers up close. Got to see the fastest animals in the sea, which are porpoises. I, let me look up the name of that porpoise. Those are called Dal's porpoises. Thank you, Internet. They can reach up to 34 miles an hour. And what the nice cool thing about them is that they are black and white. They kind of look like little orcas, little like bulleted orcas. And they're the only animals we were told by the captain that actually come to the boat and like are interested in the boat and play with the boat and that stuff. So they were like swimming in front of the boat on the side, doing flippy tricks, you know, doing doing porpoisey, dolphiny things. Um, so that was really cool. Let's see, bald eagles, uh, mountain goats, puffins, otters. I'm probably missing some animals. Oh, and spoiler alert, on my entire time in Alaska, and I was in really remote places. I did not see a single bear or moose. And man, it was disappointing. You wouldn't think it's how it is, but of the wildlife tour, the glaciers were the most amazing thing that I saw. I, I didn't think they would be so interesting. And when you're at a distance, they're kind of cool, but they just look like ice from a distance on the land. It just looks like snow on land. But when you go up to them, they are these massive, massive sheets of ice, just four times as dense as regular ice that you have in your freezer and incredible i mean they go up for kilometers and kilometers they stand hundreds of feet high they're just absolutely gorgeous absolutely amazing and they are all receding so all of the glaciers in alaska are receding which means that they are getting smaller that is a a normal process so glaciers can recede and then they can also expand in the winter gets warmer they melt a little bit 
gets colder, it snows, they get bigger. But they are all now in recession. Um, they are all getting smaller. And on an unseasonably warm day in the middle toward the end of September, I can see one one of the biggest glaciers, that's the Ialic Glacier, melting and breaking off into the sea, um, which doesn't give you a good sign. I also got to visit the Exit Glacier, which is one that President Obama visited on his trip to Alaska when he was the president, and it is almost gone. It is tiny. It's created this small little, I, I wouldn't say river, it's sort of like a, a, you know, a big creek in front of it that's melting, and it's going to be gone within probably 10 or 20 years. And I, I think a lot of these glaciers are going to be gone. So um, if you can go to Alaska, you should definitely go now because a lot of that, those glaciers are going to be gone. And a lot of that, uh, you know, the natural balance there is changing. And I, I think it's definitely worth seeing if you can go now. It's absolutely beautiful. The people are very friendly. It's sort of a, everybody's got a story. You know, a lot of people are either, a lot of people are not from Alaska. A lot of people from Texas and Hawaii so a lot of seasonal workers, I think, come from Hawaii, work in Alaska for the summer, then go back to Hawaii in the winter when it's busier in Hawaii for travelers. So there was a lot of that. Uh, a lot of pizza. There are a lot of videos coming up on YouTube. In about in a couple of weeks, you'll start seeing those. But I ate a lot. And you'll get to see all these glaciers and all that. I'm really excited for the videos because it was just one of the most amazing places I've ever been. And honestly, I might just go right back because there's... I didn't see moose, I didn't see bears, and it was cloudy the two days where I could have seen the northern lights in Fairbanks. Talking about northern lights, like you, you can go, those people in Alaska are seeing northern lights a lot. Like it's happening very frequently. So very, very jealous about that. Absolutely beautiful place. Definitely, if you can stay in Denali, it is incredible. I got to stay in a dome house. I highly recommend that place. It's, it's, sort of a, a, a mansion with separate rooms and they have separate houses that are on the property that you can rent. So if you're going with a big family, you could just rent out the entire place. Um, you get a home-cooked meal from the family that owns the place. You're right up in the woods, right into the mountains. You, you, I mean, you've got a great chance to see the Northern Lights um, and you've got a great chance to see wildlife there as well. There are a couple of apps that show you you know, when the Northern Lights, what your percentage of seeing them is, what the activity is up in the sky and all of that so uh, that's sort of my short recap of alaska it, it, it's so much i'm still processing all the things that i saw but if i can say this alaska the people the culture really has an attitude of just do whatever you want don't mess with me everything i mean like weed is legal there it's the first state in the u.s to legalize it which doesn't really you know it kind of makes you wonder because it's a conservative state but i think it's just they go along this line of like this super sort of almost libertarian ideal of like, I don't care, man. Like, don't, don't put your laws on me. I don't care what you do. Just, I don't want any restrictions on me. It was, it, it, that's kind of the, the brief thing I got about it. So definitely during my trip, a lot of interesting stories. I met a lot of interesting people. I also met one about Conspiracy Charlie. Uh, I, I, I'm calling him Conspiracy Charlie, which is really fascinating. Um, if you want to hear about that, just tweet at me. Maybe I'll make that a whole segment because I think he deserves it. Also, I want to give a big shout out to two travel blogs which really helped me out. Let me give you some travel advice when it comes to whether it's Alaska or wherever you're going. Type in whatever you're searching for, like best places to eat in Alaska, travel blog. Just put travel blog at the end of it and you will get 
much better results than you would get when you just type in best places to eat in Alaska because Google and DuckDuckGo, DuckDuckGo definitely gives you better results, but Google is just going to give you like TripAdvisor and the top 10, basically generic stuff. But if you type in travel blog after that, you're going to get people who have visited there. You're going to get people who have lived there. You're going to get specific local advice from people who are writing on the internet because they love a place and they want to share information about it. People that you can get in touch with on Twitter. It's it's just great. I mean, just for the amount of information you can get, it's going to be different information that you get. So I'm going to give a shout out to two. One is uh, Julia Beroldsheimer. Her post on Alaska, it's called Our Complete Alaska Itinerary, was absolutely great for ideas. And there's a lot of beautiful photos in there. So it gives you an idea of the things you can kind of see while you're um, taking, you know, a trip to Alaska. And then I want to give a shout out to Runaway Juno, who is a travel blogger that I've known for a very long time. She lives in Alaska now and it her posts on Alaska and her advice are just absolutely invaluable. Definitely two, uh, two posts, two travel blogs to check out. I'll leave a link to them in the show notes. So if you're planning a trip, definitely check out Julia Berolzheimer's site and check out uh, Runaway Juno. They'll, they'll have a ton of information for you. So Alaska, beautiful. Try to get there, you know, right before the season, right at the cusp of the end of the season. So that's like early to mid-September is a great time to go, early to mid-May. The weather is changing. I had to drive from Fairbanks, Anchorage, and half of that was through a snowstorm with about, you know, six to eight inches of snow coming down. It was uh, interesting and fun, but, you know, the weather there is is unpredictable and definitely very tough. So that's Alaska for you. Um, Check out the videos. I'll let you know when those are coming out. But now, now I want to leave you with one last story from one of the greatest travelers that you've probably never heard of. And when I read this story, I was like, they need to make a movie about this lady because it is fascinating. So let's talk about Aloha Wonderwell. She is a Canadian or was a Canadian-American internationalist, explorer, author, filmmaker, and aviator. In the 1920s, while she was still a teenager, starting at 16 years old, she traveled 380,000 miles across 80 countries, becoming the first woman to circumnavigate the globe in a Ford 1918 Model T. The journey took five years from 1922 to 1927 to complete. And you would think, oh, that's a pretty amazing story. I wonder what that's about. That can't get any more incredible. Well, it does get even wilder than that. It is, it's it's almost like it's not real. So she was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba. When her mother married Herbert Hall in 1908, she changed her name to Idris Hall. Now in 1914, at the beginning of the First World War, her stepfather joined the Canadian Expeditionary Force after arriving in England, was transferred to the British Army and made a lieutenant. Then the family followed him to Europe where they traveled around England, Belgium, and France. In June 1917, Herbert Hall was killed in combat in Belgium. And during this time, she had been studying across a couple of boarding schools in, uh, in Belgium and France as well. Now, she met her traveling companion, Walter Cap Wanderwell, in 1922. That is when she was 16 years old. They married in 1925, up to her about 19, and had two children. As they continued to travel the world, she performed on stage, giving travel lectures against the backdrop of a silent movie, Car and Camera Around the World. Now, this adventure began because of Walter Wanderwell, her husband, 
capturing the headlines headlines in a thing called the Million Dollar Wager, which was a round-the-world endurance race between two teams racing Ford Model Ts to see which one could visit more countries. Now, Wanderwell was a controversial figure, being arrested during World War I on suspicion of being a German spy, but was released in 1918. In 1922, when she was 16, Idris, who is Aloha Wonderwell, applied for a job as a mechanic and filmmaker of the team as it motored around in a 1917 Model T. She responded to an advertisement reading, Brains, Beauty, and Breaches. World Tour Offer for Lucky Young Woman wanted to join an expedition, Asia, Africa, and then she met with Captain Wanderwell in Paris and secured a seat on the expedition. She served as the expedition's translator, driver, and filmmaker and took on the name Aloha Wonderwell, even though Walter was still married to someone else at the time. Idris quickly became the face of the expedition, which captured her adventures in a series of movie travelogues. So this trip took five years, and she visited places in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. And in Calcutta in 1924, their tour crossed paths with planes from the first aerial circumnavigation, and she also filmed that meeting. She might have been the world's first travel vlogger, if you can imagine that. And it's just fascinating, and it goes on. So in 1930 and 1931, this is after circumnavigating the globe in a Ford Model T, she learned to fly a German seaplane called Junker and would later land on an uncharted part of the Amazon River when the Wanderwells traveled to the state of Mato Grosso in Brazil. They made several fights with this seaplane and once ran out of fuel on the Paraguay River and then received help from the Borono people. Her crew filmed a ceremonial dance, which was the first contact with the Bore villagers and the Bororo men experiencing sympathetic labor pains. It was made into a 32-minute silent film called The Last of the Bororos and is preserved in the Smithsonian Institution's Human Studies Film Archives and include Aloha Wonderwell's meeting with Brazilian explorer Candido Rondon. Now, like I said, she married Walter Wanderwell in 1925. This seems interesting because it is reported here that their marriage prevented the FBI from arresting him under the Mann Act, a law which prohibits transporting women across state lines for, quote, immoral purposes. Now, during this time, Aloha gave birth to a daughter in 1925 and a son named Nile. The daughter's name was Valerie, and they continued their travels. They sailed from Cuba to South Africa in the 1920s. This is just absolutely wild to me. And aside from dealing with poor roads, the Wonderwells also had difficulty finding gasoline for their vehicles. And during their travels in Africa between 1926 and 28, they used crushed bananas for grease and elephant fat for engine oil. The global tour included 43 countries. Oh yeah, and as if she wasn't doing enough, in 1929, she cut her hair, Aloha cut her hair, and fought as a member of the French Foreign Legion. What is this? Who is this person? This, talk about the most interesting person alive. I mean, this she's got to be up there. She returned to the United States after the trip in Miami in 1929, donated one of their Model Ts known as Little Lizzie to Henry Ford before screening the film car and camera around the world. In 1942, Henry Ford decided that Little Lizzie and 50 other autos would be scrapped for the war effort, which is unfortunate because that thing belongs in a museum. I'm just going to go into wrap up her story, which I find even more fascinating. So in 1932, a couple purchased a yacht, a 10-foot Karma, 110, sorry, 10, 110 foot Karma. So I think Wanderwell was pretty loaded. I mean, this is what it's sounding like. 
intending to document the voyage on the South Seas film. And December 5th, 1932, a day before they were to embark, Wanderwell was murdered on the yacht in the harbor near Long Beach, California. William James Guy, a member of their 1931 expedition to South America, who had attempted mutiny on a previous voyage, again, another fascinating story, was tied to the crime. He had an alibi and was acquitted. Another man, Eugene Fernando Montague, was briefly considered a suspect, was never charged. But that crime, it seems like, remains unsolved. Wanderwell later remarried again a man, Walter Baker. They traveled to New Zealand, Australia, Hawaii, India, Cambodia, Wyoming, all Indochina, all kinds of places. And her film includes one which contains the only known footage of Desert Dust, a famous Palomino wild horse. First travel vlogger, there you go. She continued to give lectures all the way up until her death. She died on June 4th, 1996. There is some footage of hers at the Academy Film Archive in the Aloha Wonderwell Baker Film Collection. They preserved many of the, her films, uh, both the 35mm and 60mm sources, including rare 1920s and 30s footage. Now, there had been some talk about this potentially being a movie, but if it... I mean, this is just... like uh, This has got to be the easiest script in the world to write. It's fascinating. I was going to say, I could see Kate Blanchett playing that role, but she's probably too old for that. Uh, you probably need someone a lot younger to play you know, someone who's 16, but it's, it's just fascinating story. And I really wanted to share it with you. Um, just to let you know about these people that, you know, we're kind of doing what a lot of us are doing now, but way before there was social media, way before, you know, it was easy to edit and upload. I mean, there was no upload. It's just fascinating. So I hope you enjoyed that travel story of Aloha Wonderwell. Um, Google her, find out more about her. There are a couple of books written about her. So if you want to learn more, you can find them there. But for now, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you very much for listening. A couple of quick things. Um, I have some giveaways that are planned on Instagram, on YouTube, and right here on this podcast. So make sure you stay listening. The next one should be out next week. I'm going to run giveaways until the end of the year. I've got a lot of good things to give away, cash prizes, all kinds of fun stuff for you guys, all kinds of fun travel gear. And if you're listening right now, you're a super listener because you've gotten to all the way to the end of the episode. And if you haven't already, please leave the Fox Nomad podcast five stars wherever you're listening, whether it's Google, Apple, whatever you're listening to this on, the five stars really helps, really helps get the word about the podcast out. I'm really excited for what's to come up. We've got a lot of great guests lined up, a lot of great stories, a lot of great travel news. But until then, I want to thank you for your time and enjoy the rest of your day. And I'll talk to you in the next episode.